part of Christian worship for um, 2,000 years has been the public reading of Scripture. And our passage today is Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures, and we pray as we... um, as we hear from them, that you form us and shape us more into the image of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, my wife and I are from Southern California. Um, I grew up over the hill from Malibu. It sounds super pretentious, because it is. And uh, the weather was perfect all the time. It never got too hot. It never got too cold. It was amazing. Then my wife and I uh, faithfully, obediently followed the Lord to Dallas, Texas, where it is hot all the time. Like our second summer there was like 100 days over 100. And we came accustomed to the Texas heat. It's awful. And we are bearing our cross for Jesus. And, and then we moved to Austin a year ago. And we just expected the weather to be the same. And dear Lord, it is so much hotter here. And so more awful. And the humidity is just... Uh, I just wake up each morning and I try to practice rejoicing by saying at least it's not Houston at least it's not Houston. We have some friends getting married in Houston in August. I don't know why you're doing it, and you just hate your guests, don't you? It's gonna. Uh, hopefully, it's inside. Um, but our expectations did not meet the reality of the weather here in Austin, Texas. Um, I graduated, so my wife graduated college in 2008. Remember 2008? It was a great year to enter the workforce. It was wonderful. Especially she was Latin and philosophy, and I was music and theology majors. You know, people were just asking us to come work for them. You know, it was just, we, we went into college, and we were told by uh, people we trusted, like the people that raised us, and financial people, like, it's cool, take out 30000 40000 in student debt for, a hum- or for fine arts degree, not fine arts, whatever, hum- humanities or whatever we decide to study, and you'll get a great job. You'll pay those suckers off right out of college. You'll have the pick of the litter when it comes to your careers, right? Yeah, 2008 was awesome. My generation's expectations did not meet the reality of the world at that moment. What about you? What expectations do you have for your life right now? Maybe you have expectations that you'd be married by now, or if you are married, you had expectations that your marriage would be in a different, better place, or maybe it's expectations you have for your children or your career. You'd be farther along. You'd have the big, comfy office by now. What expectations do you have in your life that are not being met by the harshness of the reality we live in? What about you? But for me, when, when I feel anxiety rising up, when I, I feel that 
bundle of nerves in my belly began to slowly rise up. When I noticed my chest is tight because I haven't taken a deep breath for several minutes, that anxiety is often triggered by certain expectations I have or I'm trying to, trying to work through in the moment that are not meeting the reality I'm living in. Now, I know anxiety is much more nuanced than that, especially at the clinical level. I'm not trying to downplay the serious effects of anxiety, but we live in an anxious time. We live in a time when many of us have or are experiencing some level of anxiety throughout our daily lives. And with that, we hear Paul say, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then he goes on to say, Do not be anxious about anything, but, but actually the peace of God will, that surpasses all understanding, it will come upon you. And you might find yourself this morning going, Really? Really, Paul? Rejoice in the Lord always. Do not be anxious. Really, Paul? I mean, come on. Paul doesn't live in the modern age. Paul doesn't have an iPhone in a 24-hour news cycle. Paul doesn't live in the suburbs where he has to keep up with the Joneses and show how big his SUV is and what vacations they're taking and what school your kids are going to. Come on, Paul. You don't have the real anxieties that we do. You're right. Paul didn't live in this modern world, but Paul also had his own set of expectations that were not met. We first meet Paul in the story of Scripture when he is Saul and he's going around persecuting Christians. And he is the religious leader of all religious leaders or the Pharisee of all Pharisees. He's moving up and to the right. He's actually doing better than a Jewish man could have expected to be doing in the time and the place he lived under Roman rule. But then, (laughs) Paul has an encounter with the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. And any expectations he had for his life took a radical turn. Paul is now writing this letter years after meeting Jesus. He's writing to other believers, the Philippians in the city of Philippi. And Paul is writing to these believers not from the comfy corner office, but from a jail cell because he's being persecuted. He has followed Jesus so faithfully that he is thrown into jail and he's writing to brothers and sisters in a church he had started who are beginning to feel the same thing. They're beginning to feel the beginnings of persecution, not at the physical level yet, but it's starting to cost these Christians something to follow Jesus faithfully at the social and economic level. They are not moving up into the right. Rather, all the expectations they had for a happy and successful life are now starting to fade. And for Paul, it seems like the more and more he followed Jesus, instead of moving up to the right, he's moving closer and closer to death. So why is Paul able to say, rejoice in the Lord always? Again, I say, rejoice. See, Paul, throughout the years of his life and ministry, he just started to realize life is hard. He knew sin permeates every single cell of creation. He knew he was experiencing in his flesh the cost of following Jesus, and so were the Philippians. You see, Paul didn't live up under this cultural narrative we call the American dream. 
If you've lived in this country, if you were born into this country, if you've spent more than a couple years living here, you can't escape this narrative, and this narrative has permeated the church also, that life is ten, tends to be awesome all the time. That life's going to end up being okay. And what is defined by that is like, you never really should have to worry about money. You never really have to worry about your health. That life's going to be generally awesome all the time. And if that's the cultural that we live under, that's the narrative, that's the story we have come to believe when finances get tight, when the doctor calls the C word, cancer, this narrative is blown up. Where are we left to go? Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say rejoice. You see, the, the reason Paul can say rejoice in the Lord always, do not be anxious, the peace of God will be with you, is actually found in verse 5 where Paul says, the Lord is near. Now, when you hear the Lord is near, you probably think something like, oh, God's with me in the sufferings I'm going through, in the midst of the anxiety, he's close to me, and and." That you can pull from verse 9 where he says the peace of God will be with you, but he's not saying that here. He's actually saying the Lord will return soon. Paul is pointing the Philippians to Resurrection Day, what we read about in Revelation 21, when Christ returns and he will make all things new. And it makes sense that Paul would point the Philippians, he would point you and I to the resurrection because his life was radically changed by the power of the resurrected Christ. That when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, it was the God in Jesus who was alive and reigning. It was the power of the resurrection that changed Paul's course for for his life and changed the course of humanity. It was the resurrection that now defined reality for Paul, not the anxieties and worries around him. The Lord will return soon. Now, it's, it's easy to think that Paul is just the um, like spiritual cheerleader to the Philippians and to you and I saying like, hey, 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 like I, it, it's 30 seconds left in the game. We're down by 50 points. We're like, come on, we can do it. And you're saying, you're like, no, we can't. Paul is a realist about what's happening in the lives of the Philippians and himself. The Lord is near. But here's the thing. We're 2,000 years removed, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. So, was Paul one of those crazy end-time predictors? Were all the early Christians these crazy end-time predictors? Because Paul and the early church believed with everything in their hearts that Jesus was going to physically return in their lifetime. And they lived that way. They were freed from anxiety. They were freed from, from all the worries because they believed that Christ was coming soon. But Paul was not one of those crazy end-time predictors. Paul was not one of those guys who believed like, ah, I did the math through these verses, and now I realize on this day, oh, wait, oh, it already passed carried the one wrong. Oh, now here's the day, right? No, that's not what Paul's getting at. 
Paul's pointing to the power of the resurrection to free them, to free us, because we know that one day Christ will, re- will return. But at the same time, Paul was also being honest. He knew the Philippians were actually in the midst of trials, in the midst of anxieties, that Christ had not returned for them yet. Now, you may have heard a passage like this, Rejoice in the Lord, and, and it just feels like someone's trying to like, give you a Christian, like, cheer you up. Or maybe you've been in, this, in a situation where you've, you've gone through a season of extreme anxiety or you're in one now, and a, a well-meaning brother or sister in the faith comes up and puts their arm around you. They're like, just, I know your husband just died, but just rejoice in the Lord, Right? I know your friends left you, but just rejoice in the Lord. I know you can't make your mortgage payment, but just rejoice in the Lord. How does that make you feel? Awesome, right? Because I've read this passage. It's a coffee mug passage, right? Like you see it on the coffee mugs at the Christian gift stores. And I've always struggled. How do you actually play this out? In the midst of the anxieties, in the midst of the trials of this world, what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord, to bring everything to Him with thankfulness? And most times when you hear this preached on, they stop at verse 7, but actually we have to go on to verses 8 and 9 because this is where the aha moment is. Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. It seems kind of odd, because Paul is talking about these kind of like uh, prayer and thanksgiving and rejoicing. Then he lists all these virtues. And many scholars actually say that these aren't Christian virtues. Paul was an amazing missionary. He was taking the common virtues held in the Greco-Roman world because these are all good and beautiful things. And he was able to point out where God was already moving in the culture, even though the culture didn't recognize it. He was saying, hey, hey, these things you all agree on, what is good and honorable and just and true and lovely and pure, these things, this is, think on these things. These things are something in our hearts as humans. We long for this to be our reality because they're actually pointing us to the resurrection day when this will be our reality but we're not there yet. So Paul says this, think on these things. Why does Paul say that? Because Paul knows the things we put into our minds shapes the way we think. It shapes how our heart reacts to things. It shapes our even physical, biological level how we react to situations. What things are you thinking on? Students, how's TikTok affecting you? The social media influencer that spent seven hours getting her makeup perfect and the right lighting to make her look skinny enough. How does that make you feel? Watching the 24-hour news entertainment of your choice. It seems like the world is hijacked to make us feel anxious and worried and scared. Because here, because it is. The things we take in that make us feel anxious. Billions of dollars are being made off of your fear, off of your anxiety, and we just give into it. And it forms us 
because these are the things we think on. I've never gotten off of social media and the news and been like, I just feel the peace of Jesus. Never, ever, ever. And yet I still go back to it. Paul says, think on these things because we have to actively fight against them. Then he says, practice these things. If you're following along in your Bible or, or scrolling along, highlight where it says practice and where it says think on. Paul says, practice these things because it's hard. We have to fight against the cultural trends to think and practice on these things. We have to work at it. Many of us just think that uh, receiving God's peace is just like, like we're just some monk, um, and it just, just washes over us. Now, that can happen in some sense through prayer and scripture and meditation and all that. But for the most part, that's not what Paul is teaching. He's saying, no, you have to be active in this. You have to participate. You have to set your mind on these things that are good, lovely, true, honorable, worthy of praise. And you have to practice doing this. To practice these things, it takes effort. God brings the peace, but our effort is creating an environment, a posture of our heart and our mind to receive his peace. And when we do that, God's peace will be with us. So what does that look like? We can start doing that in worship. This is why we gather every single week. Pastor Dan and I want you to be here not to make us feel better about ourselves, not to pay the bills, but because we really believe that what we do here every single week forms and shapes us as humans. Just as staring at your phone all day or watching Netflix all night, those form and shape you. These are counter practices to the culture. As we sing, as we give thanks, as we confess our sins, as we receive forgiveness, as you sit under the teaching of Scripture and have your mind and heart formed by the active Word of God, as we come to the table and receive the very body and blood of our Savior, these things form us and shape us. Now, you might feel like it's not doing anything, but over the course of a lifetime... They start to form and shape you into the kind of person that experiences God's peace. What does that look like to meditate, to think on the honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise things? Because the reality is you and I, we're going to leave this place in a few moments and we're going to go back to a world that's riddled with anxiety where you and I are going to struggle with relationships and bills to pay and jobs to show up at. What does it look like for this to take place in those areas of life? This picture is my life right now. That's Soren, our two-and-a-half-year-old. And he loves all things cars and trucks. And this is a Saturday afternoon and a Monday evening and a Tuesday and a Wednesday and a Thursday and a Friday and a Saturday. And it's going to be my reality in about 45 minutes. Tanya and I had him. We were a little bit older when we had him. So we were set in our ways. Like we really enjoy sleep. And we really enjoy routine. And we really like a clean house. And then Soren came in and went, boom, <laughs> I'm here. And my wife's in California visiting. Oh, she's on a plane right now, flying home from California, visiting our, our new niece who was just born. So it's just been me and him. And I've had to practice this weekend being present and being like, Lord, instead of, like, I just stepped on another Lego. And, like, he just threw more food on the ground and a blowout diaper at the pool. It was great. It was so much fun. Saying, Lord, I can focus on those things or I can be thankful and focus on what is lovely and pure in him and how he sees the world 
in a whole new way and begins to shape and form me. And I begin to experience the peace of God. What does it look like for you in your chaos and your anxiety? And Paul goes on to say, it's the peace of God that surpasses all human understanding. We have many people in our congregation who are suffering um, from cancer or various um, just diseases that could very likely take their life. And I have been amazed as I sit with people over the years of pastoral ministry that once the diagnosis comes, there's shock and fear and anxiety. But as like kind of the plan comes together and they start knowing what, they, the, the, what the plan is and it might not work out, but I'm always amazed at how so many of them, I ask, how are you doing? They're like, I just sense the peace of God in a way I never have before. And I think a lot of that, they may not realize what they're doing, but often um, what I hear when they receive that kind of diagnosis, their priorities shift really quickly. They start to focus on the good, true, lovely, honorable things. Does that mean they struggle with it and it, uh, they never just like, hum all the time? No. But in those moments, their reality has been redefined by the the Lord is near, that no matter what happens, whatever the cancer or disease does to their body, resurrection is coming. And the peace of God surpasses all human understanding and comes upon them. The Lord is near. Now have this cup of water. You have to, can I get the house lights up a little bit? All right, you have to answer when I ask one of two questions. Okay, if this glass is half empty, raise your hand. I'm the only... Okay, we got a cup. Those are my people. Thank you for being honest. Thank you. Yes. If it's half full, raise your hand. Ugh. You're the worst. <laughs> Where's Pastor Dan when I need him? He's like, it's not even kind of full. <clears throat> I'm not trying to tell us we just need to be more optimistic. Just smile in the midst, rejoice in the Lord. No, not, that's not what I'm saying. Years ago, I saw this uh, video, and uh, the, the interviewer was going around with a glass of water like this, and very much um, they were going around and talking to people in the street and asking the question, half full, half empty, and kind of they would give their various answers. And they come to a man that is kind of, you could tell he was rough around the edges in the way he spoke and the way he dressed. Um, the way he carried himself, that life had not gone as expected for this man. And he says, is the glass half empty or half full? And the man, he says, I'm just thankful I have a cup. Amen. That'll preach. This man, despite his circumstances, despite the reality that he was not living the American dream, He was able, he didn't even realize it, but he was filling that cup, not with water, but he was filling it with the peace of God through his rejoicing and thankfulness. And brothers, you and I, we can view different, uh, we can view life, reality differently through the view of the resurrection, that the Lord is near. Jesus doesn't promise to take away all the things that causes our anxiety, but he promises that as we practice these things, that we think on these things, that as we actively participate in in what he's doing in our lives, he brings the peace of God upon us. So as you are sent out this week into your ordinary, everyday, anxious lives, I'm not promising that you're magically going to just be, um, but God makes his peace available to us. 
that he invites us into it. So brothers and sisters, may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.